we meet our panelists. First up, we've got Anna Hollandrake. Which, hello. Well done for sitting next to me. Like, we didn't plan that, <laughs> but that was really well done. Yeah, yeah. Um, hello, everyone. Um, my name is Anna Hollandrake. I am a concept artist, il illustrator, uh, kind of games generalist. Uh, I am also one of this year's uh, Breakthrough Brits, and I do a whole mixture of things, uh, ranging from kind of like really uh, very kind of... Um, like day-to-day uh, -day game development all the way to uh, art direction and that kind of thing. So a whole mixture of stuff, because I, I like too many things. So that's, that's where I'm at. Well, speaking of you liking to make things, we actually have a VT of some of the things that you've made. <laughs> Should we take a look? Oh, gosh, OK, yep. <laughs> More intense as you go. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it ratcheted yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, scale. oh, really, really chill. It's really laid back, and it's just like, oh, gosh. <laughs> like your games career. Yeah, yeah. So, Henry, would you like to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Hello, everyone. My name's Henry Hoffman. I'm an indie game developer. I'm based here in London at the moment. Um, I, I'm also co-founder of a company called Fiddlesticks, and I made a bunch of different indie titles, starting with a game called Mush, uh, moving on to a game called Cube, uh, a bunch of other ones in between, and then my most recent title is called Hue, and that's on Xbox, PS4, PC. Nice one. If you've not played Hue, I really recommend giving it a go, but probably at a point where you're not that stressed already, because it, it will blow your blood pressure. And Johanna. So Johanna's arrived all the way from Amsterdam. It's come a really long way, so we're very grateful to have you. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you very much. It was only a 50-minute flight, so it's fine. Uh, <laughs> I'm a game tech programmer at Guerrilla Games, and my most recent work has been Horizon Zero Dawn. I work on cutscenes and cinematics mainly as a programmer to support the artists and designers that are creating cutscene cinematics conversations. And yeah, that's it. <laughs> now that we've heard a bit about where you guys are at now, can we rewind the clock and talk about actually what your first game was within the industry, starting with Anna? Okay, so um, it's kind of interesting because uh, my first game in the industry, uh, I'm not actually sure if it was it changed a whole lot, so uh, it didn't come out while I was doing my uh, kind of placement there. Uh, I was working up in Chester at Poor Print Games as a uh, as part of a skill set accredited um, kind of thing that a lot of games courses do because I studied game art, uh, and so I had a kind of placement there, uh, and it was a side scroller kind of brawler with uh, zombies as a kind of I don't think it was cooperative, but uh, yeah, it was. Um, I did a lot of content concept art on it, I did a lot of 3D, uh, I definitely was bumping into a whole lot of stuff, like I, I realised I did not know so many things after graduating, I was just like, I don't know what submission is, what's JIRA, what's source control, I have no clue, like there are so many little nitty gritty day to day details I had no idea about. Um, it's changed a lot now, um, it came out I think uh, last year, maybe the year before that, called Bloody Zombies, uh, I noticed a few bits and pieces that I'd still done, so it was really nice to kind of see that, it's in uh, VR and it's like kind of a combination um, reality game. So yeah, it, it was uh, like a really awesome kind of first experience because it's a small team and I got to really interact with programmers for the first time and when you're just in the art zone, you're just like, oh, I'm making some nice pictures, but they don't do anything. <laughs> so it was nice to kind of have that collaboration for the first time. I mean, Johanna, you're a programmer who makes the nice pictures actually go and do something. What was your first job in the games industry? It was not as a programmer. Uh, Interesting. So I started out, well, first I started programming, and then I studied 3D art and animation, and I didn't like programming first, and then I didn't really like 3D art and animation. Uh, <laughs> but when I was in school, I realized that since I had a programming background, I really enjoyed making scripts and automation of all the things I was doing in Maya already. So I started investigating rigging, skinning, scripting in Maya much more, and I became a technical animator. And then in school, I got an internship as a technical animator at a company called Fat Shark. The last thing they made was Vermintide, and I worked then on a game called Escape Dead Island. And uh, that was really great, and that's how I continued my career from that point. And if you want to know some <laughs> more how it continued, uh, after that, uh, I got a job at Guerrilla Games, as also as a technical animator, and from there, I, I, I liked the job, but I wanted to investigate a more technical as aspect of it, 
and I started programming more and doing more just C++ programming and managed to transfer into a programming role where I am today. Henry, you're a bit of a contrarian because <laughs> you've actually never been employed by a game studio, have you? No, that's right. So I've never really exactly worked my way up in the industry, I guess you'd say. Um, so when I first, I've been making games for a very long time, from about nine years old. I've always been sort of making games with drag and drop tools and things like that. Um, but it was when I went to university, I kind of came into university with the intention of being sort of a game artist. Both my parents are artists. Um, I love making video games. I assumed that I was going to go into university and come out the other end as sort of an artist at a AAA company. Um, but in the first year of university, they, some of the lecturers encouraged us to do game jams. So we ended up going to a game jam, forming a small team with a, with a group of friends. Um, we started working on this game that we thought had, uh, had some potential merit, and it's a game that turned into a game called Mush. Um, and we, we pitched it to a competition called Dare to be Digital, which is actually sp was sponsored by BAFTA. And it's a really interesting competition because you can be a student, you can go, you can make a prototype, and by the end of it, if you win that competition, you get nominated for a BAFTA, which, is, which was the breakthrough, uh, the Ones to Watch Award. And so we went through that whole process, incredibly inexperienced and out of our depth. We had no idea what we were doing. Um, I was producing game art, but had never like, made a game before, or like, never made a game before with a team. Um, so we all worked together, uh, we won that competition, and then uh, got nominated for a BAFTA, won another one, and then, because of that uh, success, um, Microsoft approached us, Microsoft Studios, and they were like, we want to fund your game. And then we were like, damn, second year of university, we'd have to start a company and be serious. Um, so we were really out of our depth. We had to get like business consulting and stuff and start a company. And then I realized very quickly that I was doing things like accounts and like boring business stuff. Um, so later on in my career, I had to try and move away from that. But then we released the game. We released a game called Mush. We got to number three on the store, um, and we're really happy with that. Everyone always forgets about the boring bits, don't they? You know, that the, the accounts, the spreadsheets, but that's a big part of game design. And actually, that, that was so problematic in my first game that that was a real lesson learned, that if I want to be lead design, I want to be sort of in creative control of the project, I can't also be managing the business. And later on, I, I kind of, move towards having someone focus purely on the business while I focus purely on project lead. How do you choose an area of games to specialize in? Because all of you represent a very different area of game design and studios have so many different jobs within them. You know, how do you find what jobs are out there in a studio, especially when some of them are lesser known? Um, I mean, I was kind of aggressively thorough with uh, the research side of stuff. Um, so I always loved digital painting. Like, uh, I'm so glad that I was really bad at drawing terrible anime because uh, I couldn't do the line work, so I kind of fell into digital painting as a result. Um, and I discovered that people made the concept art for games. So I think just being online and kind of making the things that I wanted to see naturally pulls you into communities that uh, will give you the information that you need. Um, but then I wanted to have the best experience possible, so I did. I went through every games course in the country and uh, looked at their graduate work and talked to uh, their alumni and really figured out what I wanted. And for me, it was traditional art principles and a really good focus on um, uh, concepting principles rather than just being like, I'm going to draw a cool orc. It's like, no, you will learn how the bicep works. So uh, I was really thorough about that. So say you know that you want to be a game artist or a programmer or something specific. What do you look for in a job posting? I always look for... In a job posting or someone applying? Is it um, I guess it, like, let, let's do both. Yes. What, what are you looking in the job posting when you yourself are looking and then after when you're hired? When me and myself are looking, I'm looking for anything, really. <laughs> looking at job postings is really... It's difficult because sometimes you, you're very self-critical at many times. You're very self-critical and you're saying, oh, I'm not meeting these criteria, so I can never apply for this job. And you just need to go for it and try. And many, many companies have just have open applications. So if you feel, oh, I want to work at this company, I want to go for it, send in an open application and it might just go your way. It's very 
yeah, you're, it's easy to dismiss yourself without even trying. So I would say just go for what you think looks interesting and for the companies and games you want to work on. There's that kind of cliche, but it is true of you miss 100% of the shots that you don't. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's totally true. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, if you have no experience in making games, but you want to dive into the games industry, like where do you get started? So I think it depends on what area you sort of want, want to go into. I think as an artist, um, looking, looking to collaborate with other people that, are, that want to make games is a really good place to start. There's so many meetups like, around London and all, all over the UK and around the world where you can go, you can meet other game developers, and you can be like, hey, let's make something together, let's jam. Uh, I think collaboration is really key then. And then if you're a designer or you're a programmer, there's so many tools available where you don't have to have any previous programming experience to be able to start building games. And it will teach you sort of core programming principles and core game design principles. There's a tool called Construct2, which is a drag and drop games, uh, games engine. And I actually use that to ship one of my games. So it's, it's very possible to go out there, use a tool, it's very accessible in order to create something that's really polished. Which game was that? That was a game called Mortarmelon, which we made in three months. <laughs> that's amazing. What, are there any other tools and um, programs that you guys would recommend? Um, I mean, uh, great engines uh, that you can access really easily, Unity and Unreal Engine. Like, especially if you're an artist, I'd really recommend Unreal Engine because uh, you have to have a little bit of scripting knowledge to get along in Unity, but there's so many, like, visual scripting tools that are just kind of drag and drop. I absolutely adore Unreal Engine. It's like the captain of my heart, but, yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, like, this panel is moving up, so what, what if you're already working at a studio, you know, you, you've been working on games, and you just want to take your knowledge of engines or any tool to like the next level. Are there any YouTubers or programs or, or anything that you can think of that would help take your knowledge of game art or programming up a notch? What I was looking into when I was both before my internship and during my internship, there was a, was a great tech art forum with a lot of industry professionals and I could just go out there show them my portfolio or show them my work, the, what, the work that I was able to show, and just ask, hey, what can I do better? And I got so much help and so much mentoring through that, just putting yourself out there, finding the forums, finding the websites where you can just ask people, be proactive, ask people for help. And I think that's the same if you're already in the industry, ask your coworkers. Ask the senior people, just go up to someone and say, hey, I want to get better at this. Can you help me? And 100% of the times I've done that, people have always helped me. And it's been great. <laughs> it's something that I hear a lot at these events that the games industry is so welcoming and so willing to help out other people. Like, it's, it's interesting that you were saying about the Dare to be Digital. You know, that, that's a big program that BAFTA do, but there are so many different events, programs, competitions that will introduce you to people that will help you up within your career. I mean, if you're applying to a company and you want to work somewhere that will give you that leg up, like what's important to include in a covering letter or a portfolio? Um, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. Uh, so I always make sure that my cover letters are like tailored specifically to the company. Yes. Uh, I worked on... Um, <laughs> Uh, I worked on uh, the Magic the Gathering console and uh, mobile and PC uh, game for a little while. And in my cover letter, I was just straight up like, I have too many cards. I have a hoarding problem. Like, <laughs> and it worked out well. Like, uh, and I turned up at the studio and I was just like naming the artists for like, the different illustrations that are on the walls. And it, it, I mean, it went a, a bit too far and I was like, I know that artist's birthday. And they were like, mm. <laughs> You started Maybe backing not. away. Yeah. <laughs> um, but personal details, like being a real person with passions and enthusiasms. Um, and uh, yeah, because they're looking, it's difficult to hire. Like when you know, when you get a vibe of someone's like uh, character and what they're passionate about and what they care about, you, you want that fit. And uh, yeah, having that tailored kind of detail about what you're really interested in the company is so important. What about a portfolio as an artist? Like how do you construct yours? And um, On a kind of concept art or 3D level, you really don't need too much. Like 
art directors have very little time. Like they are so busy. They have a billion emails to deal with. Um, so as a general rule, I'd say probably like eight to 10 pieces is fine. Like if you have 3D models, have some breakdowns, don't click around, don't have like loads and loads of subgroups, put your art first and foremost. Like some of the best portfolios I've seen are literally just a scrolling page of like a bunch of images. But it's putting your work out there immediately and making it as easy as possible for people to see it. Not making the interviewer work too hard. Exactly, exactly. Oh, and yeah, honestly, if there's anything that you have doubts about, just get it out of your portfolio. Like, people look at your weakest piece. So yeah, you don't need too much. So yeah, it's really focus on your positives. Nice. Johanna, what, what do you think people should include in covering letters? I really like when people have done the research about the company uh, and they know what they're applying to. Like, sometimes you have people sending out 100 applications to 100 companies and you get one when they're addressing the wrong company. And you're like, well, like a little more effort is always nice. And I, and I fully agree that just seeing passion and someone being really interested in what they're doing, that's what I care about. And also when you see, when you meet really junior people, their skill is important, but what's really important is that they can learn and shape into the regular or senior position that you can see them in. So they are passionate about learning, they want to learn, and you can see that just radiating from them. For hiring for sort of, as, a, as an indie studio, we've kind of brought some people on to help out. And uh, for, for some of the roles that are more design focused or more programming focused, the most important thing for me beyond uh, CV, beyond cover letter, is always just having something playable so that I can sit side by side with them, we can play through the game, and then we can dis discuss the decisions they made. So the design decisions, why they program things certain ways. If we can go through and we can talk through that, that's how I automatically know whether they're going to be a good fit to work with me. That's a really fun idea to actually play a game with your boss <coughs> at your job interview. <laughs> but a lot of pressure like, to get that high score. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I do that. if they're bad at it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Judgment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how as a career starter do you go about selling yourself um, and your skill set to potential employers? Um, when, I'm, you, when you might not have that much to start off with, even. Uh, I have. I'm a big proponent of like putting yourself out there. Like I've kind of always put my work online, um, for better or for worse. Once again, terrible anime days. Like I had to wipe my deviant art from the internet. Um, but uh, Twitter has been amazing for me. Like I think uh, just being able to talk to people. Like there are so many people, including people in this room, who I've met through Twitter, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I have had some really meaningful like friendships because of that, and uh, I've been able to get feedback, and I've put myself out there, and I've had people respond to my work, um, and the games industry is very like social media based, like everyone's chatting to each other, and it's a brilliant way to get to know people. Even through Slack channels, there's yeah. you know, the games industry Slack, there's so many different yeah. oh, we were saying yeah, about space forums London. earlier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, is it a problem though that everything is so London based? Like how much is there across the UK outside of the city? So I guess one of the great things about being an indie studio is that if you're working remotely with other collaborators, you can kind of do that anywhere. Um, and I think as well, if you're if you're coming out of university and you're interested in starting your own project and getting funding and turning that into a business, London is actually a really bad place to be because it's expensive. Um, I think having good connections to London so you can come see amazing panelists like us is is really important. Um, and I think being able to come to BAFTA and see all that stuff is um, is amazing. Um, but really, if you're, if you're going to be head down for a couple of years, building your first project, trying to get that out there, trying to release your first game, which I think is the biggest obstacle to overcome as a developer, um, then it's all about keeping costs low, and it's about being realistic. And I, I don't think London is the be-all and end-all in that regard. Also, I just wanted to say, uh, as a point to something that was said earlier, uh, it can be kind of hard to find like these locations like for the Slack channels and all that kind of thing. But if you are looking to kind of get into something, Global Game Jam is really, really good because it has locations all around the UK. Um, and so that's a really good way to meet people in your area. So I think it happens in January. So if you keep an eye out for that, that's always that's good because it's all over. Because, yeah, there is a lot of stuff happening in London, but there are like pockets all over the UK. So... Are there any other events that you guys can think of for good networking that people should be thinking about? Either a game jam or a conference or just a party? So uh, when it comes to sort of 
building connections and getting into the industry and getting employed and all those sort of things. Going to develop in Brighton is, is really great for that because it's kind of a hub of the UK industry, really. There's a lot of people to talk to about that sort of thing. But for me, that's not the import most important thing when I go to a conference. The most important thing for me is going to a conference, rejuvenating uh, myself, becoming inspired, uh, understanding that sort of games are this creative outlet, that other people are making amazing things, um, coming away from that and then wanting to build something new. Um, so in that regard, it's probably not going to necessarily help your career, but it's going to help you be passionate again and rejuvenate that, uh, that passion. And Amaze uh, in Berlin is a great conference for that. And Indiecade, um, it was originally in the States, but they've, they've got one in Paris now. So that's another one that's quite near that is, uh, would be amazing to go and visit. Uh, I'm a big proponent of industry workshops. It's been going for about five years. Uh, it's very art. It's a concept art uh, and some 3D art. Uh, uh, workshop in London. Uh, it's always a bit mad as well. Like they're always, they're a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, very inspiring. Uh, you end up talking to people. Like everyone is so friendly and interconnected. And you never know. Like you'll be watching someone do this incredible talk, and then they are literally doing backflips down the uh, catwalk competition that they do on the Saturday evenings every year. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Oh, I won a Marmoset license. It was so good. <laughs> a Marmoset license? Yeah, it's a 3D rendering program. That's incredible. <laughs> For voguing. Well, so obviously these, these events are amazing, but sometimes people go to them and, you know, networking is a really scary word. Like, how, how do you network if you're a person who just doesn't really like to talk about themselves? The internet. <laughs> the internet helps. Uh, there's... If you're not feeling comfortable with going out to bars or going out to events, just looking around on internet forums, and then you also kind of have the personal shield that you're not out there in person. So if you're feeling your social anxiety kicking in, you're still just at home, and it's fine. <laughs> so I would definitely recommend that. I always feel like networking as a term, I don't particularly like it, uh, because it feels a little bit sterile. Like, when I talk to people, I just kind of want to make friends and I just want to chat. And networking has this weird veneer of like, I want to get something from you or you want to get, and it, it feels a little bit impersonal. Like building genuine connections is way better. Um, and I think just being like, just talking to the people that you kind of like naturally just vibe with is really nice. Um, and just, yeah, being online. Um, and it is, it's daunting. Like I've, people have said to me, oh, and you're so good at networking. I'm not, I will sometimes just go and sit in the bathroom for a bit just to like be in the quiet. Like I, it's okay to take time out and just like sit quietly. Like I have to amp myself up and that's totally fine. Like to talk to people, I have to, I have to like look and sit, sit at a wall, like just look at a wall for a little bit of time and that's fine. It's okay to kind of like not be on and chatting to people 100% of the time. Some of the mistakes that I see students making when they go into networking is that you've, you've come from sort of a university culture where there's a lot of drinking and partying and these networking drinks is often free, free alcohol and things like that. And that can be a recipe for disaster. And I think uh, going into these networking events and not using alcohol as like a crutch um, so that you can talk to people naturally, otherwise longer term that can be quite damaging and turn into a dependency. Um, so I think going into these things, bringing a friend is a really great way. If you need some time out, but you don't want to awkwardly be standing in the corner by yourself, go to one of these events, bring a friend, maybe talk to one person, go back to your friend, and talk to another person when you feel ready. And don't feel pressured to just constantly talk to people. Just going to an event, talking to one person, interviewing yourself, uh, in, not interviewing, handing over a business card um, is, a great, is, a, is just a great way to kind of break it in slowly. Sure, you want to go to a networking event and be able to do backflips and get a marmoset <laughs> license, not get drunk, fail at backflips and release a cage of marmosets. Yeah. The yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then end up in hospital covered in marmoset bites. <laughs> don't say that we don't give you the best tips here, guys. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what, what obstacles should we expect to face when you're forging a career in the games industry? What are some of the biggest obstacles that you guys have personally faced? I mean, getting in is, like, always tough. Um, like, the course that I did, I went, uh, I did game art at De Montfort University, and there's a really, like, solid alumni there. Um, and so many people come out of that expecting to have a job straight away. And 
that isn't usually how it works. Like, I, uh, I did my time as a barista. I was a waitress. I was a data entry temp. Like, it took some time for me to get my first job, and that's fine. Like, everyone has their process and their own story. And I really want to hammer home the fact that everything... It, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Like, expecting everything to happen immediately is kind of cruel to yourself a little bit. Like, um, you're allowed for things to take a little bit of time to develop. Any obstacles that you faced at all? So, the main obstacle is always shipping your first game. Uh, it, when you're at university, the idea of shipping your first game, game seems like an insurmountable task. Um, like, raising funds, no one's going to fund your student game unless it's exceptional. Um, when you haven't shipped a game, because there's no trust that you're going to be able to do that. Um, so that's a real struggle, and when you're at university, making the most of those sort of three years is really valuable, Move, making moves to ship your first game. But then after you've shipped your first game, you've got the experience, you know everything that's going, that's going through that process, but also it's much easier to uh, raise publisher interest and to get investment to kind of carry on. So there's like that really steep initial hurdle, but once you're over that, it becomes a lot easier. We kind of touched on this earlier, Johanna, when you were talking about your career, but I'm curious to know whether it's possible to move across in your career a few years down the line. Because obviously when you're at the beginning, you're thinking, oh, okay, I've got to study this particular course, get working at this particular studio, and there can be a sense that you're putting yourself on a fixed path. How malleable is the games industry later down the line? I would say just don't stress it. Don't make a path. It's good to have a goal. It's always good to know what you want, but be prepared that what you want might change. For me, what I wanted changed drastically because I got pretty much the job I, I really wanted. And then after a year, I was like, this is actually not really what I want anymore. And uh, if you, it's, it's work. It's a lot of work changing after, especially if you've been in the industry for a while and you want to change your path, it's, it's going to be work, but it's so valuable. And you, if you get the opportunity, go for it. And don't, I, I have a lot of students coming to me and asking, oh, I want to do this a few years from now, and I'm really, I'm not sure, should I pick this or that? Should I pick design or should I pick art? And I said, well, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm, I'm going to like art in five or ten years. Well, it doesn't really matter. Like, if you don't like art anymore in five years, you can just reevaluate what your actual passion is, keep on working on your passion, and go for that. And it'll be fine. <laughs> nice. What about you guys? Do you think, have you seen anyone move sideways within a studio that you've been working in? I mean, I can, I can break the news. Uh, like, I feel like an interloper right now because as of two weeks ago, I moved into 2D animation. I'm sorry, please don't Ooh. kill me. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can absolutely move sideways. You can move into loads of different roles. Like, everything is uh, malleable and interchangeable because you have the core principles of understanding how the uh, kind of studio runs. You understand... Uh, how like the milestones that you have to hit and there is training up of skills um, but they still transfer across like what I'm doing at the moment is a uh, much more polished kind of background art for these shows and it's still working in Photoshop it's still considering color composition and uh, yeah color composition uh, like learning new tools yeah, like the pen tool, it's very alarming, but I'm, it's really enjoying. I'm really in enjoying it even. Um, it's all transferable and it will only make you more well-rounded. Uh, I'd, I'd absolutely encourage it. And you can always go back. Like if you're like, I'm going to try something out for a bit, you can try it out in your own time as well. Uh, and you will only grow by challenging yourself in that way. I also think... Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about my co-founder. Um, the co-founder for Fiddlesticks, the company that I'm, I made Hugh under, 
uh, is called Dan DeRosha, and he originally wanted to be a rock star, and that was his goal in life. Don't we all? <laughs> but he came into university, and then he studied game design, and he was, gonna, he was convinced he was going to become a game designer, but he wasn't getting very good grades. Like, he wasn't doing very well at university as, uh, as a game designer. But then uh, he was working with other game designers, and then he found his, his flow sort of managing the projects and doing business development, going out meeting, to pe meeting people, and he was able to se secure funding for, the, for their student game and turn it into a, a fully-fledged commercial game. Um, so just because you want to work in games and you may not immediately be good at something that you thought you were good at, um, as long as you've got that time that you can experiment, then it's perfectly plausible that you can go into something, something different in the game sphere. There is also a lot of specialities in the industry that you just don't know about, and, and that some that are studio specifics. Like at Gorilla, we have one fantastic effects artist, and his job is to make clouds. He makes the best clouds. <laughs> he makes amazing clouds, but it's not something you think about. You're not in school thinking, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on clouds for years. <laughs> so it's, it's just really, it develops as you go. Did you guys have a plan in your first three years? And how much has your plan changed as you've moved through your career? It changed a lot. <laughs> uh, I... I was really sure that I wanted to be a technical animator and that that was what I was wanted to work with. And yeah, as I told before, it just that's not what it what happened. And I'm very happy I went through that path because it's so valuable for me right now to have that experience and that knowledge and it helps me in my daily job because I understand the artists. I understand many parts of of the art departments that some other programmers might not do because they haven't actually worked as an artist. And I think it's, it's great. Yeah. I feel like once I started m making games and collaborating with people that were uh, skilled as well, it became almost like a snowball effect. Like I had no control of my destiny anymore. What was happening was we were making a game, it was cool, oh no, we've now got to start a company, oh no, now we need to sustain ourselves. Um, so when I went into university, it was all about, yeah, I'm gonna, leave university with good grades, hopefully, and become an artist at a AAA studio. I really wanted to work at Ubisoft. That was always my plan. Um, working on the new Beyond Good and Evil game. That was what I wanted to do. Um, but, uh, yeah, but the way things snowball and the way things work, the only way I was able to do that was through immersing myself in games and letting nature take its course. Should you move on after each project is finished? So, you know, you work on a game for a specific time with a studio, and then you leave to move on to the next kind of dream or project? Or is it better to stay and to kind of see what you can do within a studio that you're working at? I think it really depends on the studio. Um, I, I've worked at a few different places and it, it really depends on like whether you enjoy the vibe there. If you are learning uh, in that space and you are like kind of surrounded by people who support you, like there is no obligation for you to move on. It, it's really what your gut tells you. Like, are you ready? Like, I think a lot of people are just like, okay, it's time. Like, they, they feel that urge to go. But if you aren't obligated to move on, you can really, it, you don't have a set path. You can really do what you want. Like, I was also feeling that when I got my job at Gorilla. I was like, oh, I'll stay, I'll stay um, two years and then I'll move on and do something else. Just because that's what people do, right? I didn't know. And now, five and a half years down the line, I'm like, well, I like this, and you just have to take it as it comes and just keep on checking in with yourself what you're actually enjoying and keep doing, follow what you enjoy. Where should you be at the end of your first three years in game? Like, should, should you be thinking, right, it's been three years, I wanna now be leading a team? Like, what, how many projects should you have under your belt, et cetera? Like, what sort of goals are healthy, reasonable goals to have? It very much depends. Uh, it depends what games you've been working on, what studios you've been working on. Like for, for an indie or smaller studio, five years, uh, maybe you can be leading a team at that point, while in AAA you might not even be a senior at that point. And I think setting unrealistic goals, because you don't really know. You don't know where you're gonna be in three or five years. So I think it's just, kind of setting yourself back a little bit and just go for what you like. If you keep on doing something that you like, 
go for it, work on it. I think as a, as a small studio starting out, you really want to have shipped your first game after three years. Um, I, I know a lot of developers who are kind of, who have got sort of Kickstarter funding and are maybe seven or eight years into what's going to be probably a 12-year project. And I think there's so much that you learn from shipping your first game that it's time much better spent shipping something rough and ready that you're maybe not quite happy with that isn't maybe your dream game and taking all that experience that you've learned from that process and then applying it to a dream project in the future. And probably then you'll, you'll realize that that dream project won't take 12 years. It will take three years because you know how to properly manage your time and to ship a game. That flies in the face of perfectionism, doesn't it? When you're a creative and it's your baby. <laughs> but no, just get it out and move on. Cool. Well, we're going to be opening up the floor to questions in a couple of minutes. I've just got one more question for you guys. Um, and it's to do with what we were talking about, about moving sideways in, in different careers. Because there's a quote from Miyamoto. I don't know if you guys have heard this, but he famously at Nintendo, they try not to hire gamers or, or people who are really immersed in games culture because they want to have different walks of life, different experiences and different approaches to playing games. Are there any careers that you can think of that actually have really transferable skills for game design that would work really well in a games career? UI and tools programmers or people that tools designers, we at least from my experience, uh, we need really badly because we're, we're working on our own engine, uh, as you might know. And uh, it's really nice when we get in people that have kind of an experience in UI and from other softwares and other tools that, don't, that are not necessarily games. They don't have to be games. Uh, and that's where I can really see where you can get in more people from other industries. I think for when I was working on Hugh, the audio designer and uh, composer that we approached had never worked in games before. Actually, I, it was a piece of stock music that I found online, and I really liked it. It really fitted our game, so I contacted them, and they were from Greece. So I was like, they're going to be anywhere in the world. Um, and it turns out that they were in Stratford, just down the road, um, no which was very fortunate. And coincidentally, they had watched Indie Game the movie the night before, and they were like, maybe I should make, a, make music for Indie Games. And I was like, oh, okay, this is good timing. Um, so that's an excellent way to bring, bring people in. And it, actually, last night as well at the event, I don't know how many of you were here, but um, I was talking to a writer from film and TV, and she was like, oh, these guys are video games people. Do you want to talk to them? I was like, no, I'm interested in talking to you. And um, we talked about her writing, and she was like, I've, you know, I'd never considered writing for video games before because I don't play video games. And I was like, well, that really excites me because... Um, uh, I'm looking for outside perspectives. I'm not looking for sort of cliche game writing. Uh, and I took a business card, and maybe there's a collaboration there in the future. Nice. It happens. We can see it happening now. That's really cool. You guys, like, if anyone's got any questions, I believe that we've got a mic going around. Yep, we've got one down here. So, all of you have mentioned that at some point in your career, um, that you... Oh, that... Uh, you've ended up in a situation where there's stuff that you don't know. I want to know, when should you be scared of uh, there's too much stuff that you don't know for a job and you're not ready for it, versus when should you be making those leaps? And uh, yeah, so should you have, when, when should you be thinking, I need to train for this, and when should you be thinking, I need, I'm ready for this, or I'm ready enough for this to give it a go? I mean, if you're applying for a job and you don't know enough, they'll know. <laughs> um, like, uh, you can kind of... There is an element of trust that people aren't likely to hire you if you definitely don't have at least some of the skills. Um, I'm a big believer in saying yes to things that kind of scare you. Um, I've said yes to a bunch of stuff that has ended up working out when I never really anticipated it to. Um, and even if it's something a little bit different, like tabling at a convention or doing a talk, um, it can pan out in ways that you don't expect, and you can discover parts of yourself that you didn't really know were skills that you had. Um, so I think it's worth, like, obviously, if you're like, oh, no, absolutely not. Like, I'm never going to take anything that involves C++, and that's okay. Uh, but, like, there is an element of, like, self-judgment um, where you can say, yep, I know that's not for me, but if there is that kind of intimidation, 
that kind of little bit of fear, I think it's really good to sometimes chase that because that discomfort means that you are pushing outside of your bubble and that's really important to grow. Cool. And yeah, just over there. So um, the good thing is we have uh, three people from artists, a tech programmer, if I understood, and also someone who created their own uh, company. Um, I'm from a part that is sort of invisible of the game industry because I'm a marketer. And what interests me is that I don't have a portfolio. I can't share my work. And that's something that lacks a bit whenever I apply for a job because I am... Um, Either my work is under NDA or it's something I had to send to press people but I can't share to the public. So um, I'm very glad because I got, had my first credit in games, fortunately, yay. But uh, it was, it, it's very hard to start even though I've been working in game industry for four years. So what would be your, what, how would you say someone who works in QA, production, uh, management would Enter the game industry, what would you be your feelings with that, even though I know it's not really your forte at the moment? <laughs> Thank you. What you can always do is ask the company, tell the company, I don't have a portfolio because it's under NDA, etc. And then ask them, can I do a work test? Is there anything you can provide for me so I can prove myself? And many companies do that and provide you with a work test. You can show it and it's all good. Just ask them. That was a really good question. Um, do we have any others? Yeah, just there. Um, with the, you've got short hair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hi, my name's Eve Clerk. I am a screenwriter, um, but I grew up with games and it was, they were very formative, those experiences in convincing me to become a writer. Um, what would be your advice, you touched on this a little bit before, to writers who are looking to move into the game space, but who don't necessarily have the more computational skills or technical skills um, that most people in that space have or most other roles? So when I started making the game Hue, I actually did all the writing myself and I have no writing experience. Um, so I think I rewrote the script 120 times and we were, we were going into recording. So we had a recording session booked and it was like a really tight slot. I think it was two hours. We had to record all the game dialogue. And I was up until four in the morning the night before rewriting the script that had already been sent to the voice artists. Um, so that was like a mad panic at the end. Um, and that was really a case of having a limited budget and being really inexperienced and not knowing my own sort of limitations. Um, and I did actually have someone come on board at some point to kind of consult because I was quite good at the writing. The writing was okay, it was, it was the bigger picture stuff. It was being able to do character arcs, to do uh, story design, to tie up all the loose ends. Absolutely, and that's stuff, people go into games, like indie games, and they're like, I can, I can write, I can write the dialogue for, for the story. But what they don't understand is how to write a story properly. Um, and I think for us, it's kind of an, an experience there, and what would be great is to have some sort of collaboration so uh, going on Twitter, seeing people that are making games and being like, hey, are you interested in maybe taking the narrative in a different direction? How can we sort of experiment with this? Um, that would be fantastic. And I'm just, going to events like this, I'm always meeting writers. And writers are the most amazing people to work with um, because they've got such a different insight into how the game can take shape. So uh, I'm always open to those sort of things. So it's going out, meeting people, talking to people. And then if you want to make anything like yourself, there's a really lovely little uh, engine called Twine um, that is entirely like text-based. Like it is uh, to make narrative stories. Um, and I don't think that requires any coding or at least very, very minimal coding. Um, it's, yeah, very, very approachable. And a lot of writers do little kind of choose your own like adventure style things on there. Um, but you can get really into it. Um, and it has like a lot of nuance. So yeah, I'd really recommend doing that. Like if you want to have a personal project as well. Nice one. Any more questions? Uh, yep. Hand up just here. Hi, uh, Scott Bramley. Um, do you have any advice for a composer trying to get into, into games? How, might, what might be the best route in? And is it important to know um, how to use like the middleware and that kind of thing? Uh, so I worked one-on-one -on -one with a composer for my previous project. Um, and he didn't have any games experience. But I did have to spend a lot of time with him going through the, the whole middleware process. We used a tool called Fabric, uh, which integrates in with Unity. And it was very much a collaborative process in that I would go to his house, sit in his living room for days on end, 
and we would, I would play through the game, I would build levels, and he would make music to accompany that. Um, and it was great because in the end, he was able to release a vinyl of the music um, and, a, and a soundtrack, and uh, he was able to get all the revenue and stuff from that, so that was great. But the only reason I found him was because I found a piece of stock audio online that really fitted the game, so then I approached him. But I think other ways that I would have met composers are coming to events like this and having composers approach me. And I think having a portfolio of work that is diverse enough so that you can, you can say that my, my style is gonna adapt to your game. I've had problems in the past working with composers that have very specific styles who aren't able to adapt to, to your game. So having proof that you're able, you've got that adaptability, or on the other chance, having such a unique style um, that that brings something to the game in itself. Thank you. Anyone else? Yeah, just at the back. <laughs> Hi guys, uh, very, uh, very, uh, very inspiring uh, talks uh, from you. So I, my question is more sort of trying to shift the focus a little bit from right now we're focusing a lot on people who are just starting out to a little bit more on people who have been in the business for quite a bit. And um, Johanna, you, you sort of touched on it briefly, but uh, have you guys experienced burnout in your careers and how do you acknowledge that? And more importantly, kind of how do you push past that and kind of find your vibe uh, again? So well, <laughs> everybody grabbing the mic. <laughs> um, yeah, I had really, really bad burnout. Uh, when I was making the game Hue, I was doing it all. On, I was pretty much doing most of it by myself, and we had increasing pressure to release the game. All our funding ran out. I had three months to try and wrap up the game, which was had become very closely associated with me. I was sort of going on stage and accepting awards for a game that wasn't finished yet. So there was a huge weight of expectation that, um, that it was gonna be good. Um, so I put a lot of pressure on myself. And actually, it had a really damaging effect on my mental health, on uh, people around me. And the only way that that could have been mitigated was proper time management and proper organization. Um, I feel like if you're working at a larger studio, that's gonna be very difficult, but that you need to push back if, uh, if your time is being sort of taken from you. Um, but in, in an indie studio context, like you need to, tell your publisher you need more money. You don't try and finish the game anyway. You're like, we need more money so we can finish the game. Um, and they're not gonna just drop the project. Um, whether it's an advance or something like that. I think your health is so much more important than one game in your career. And it can be really long lasting. For me, I, since Hugh came out two years ago, and it's been really difficult for me to pick up a, a new project, um, it's taken about a year and a half because of that burnout to be able to actually get into, into a new project again. So it's, it can be really damaging long-term. Yeah, like I um, have definitely had plenty of run-ins with burnout because I think part of the problem that we find in games is because it's such an aspirational industry, a lot of people want to get in it and you're constantly being told like, oh, there are loads of people that want your job, so work the extra hours. Or um, if you're not working 12 hour days, you're a failure. Um, and it's a really toxic narrative. Uh, you need time out, and I think having that very, very strict separation of uh, your work time and your personal time is so important. Um, I came up in a group of illustrators that would make schedules that were like from dawn till dusk, no days off, no weekends. Uh, and everyone kind of has RSI now. Everyone has RSI and like has had run-ins with depression. And uh, I think making sure you are taking time out for yourself that is intentional time out, not just procrastination. It's literally, I have, I struggle with this so much that I will set those intentions. I will stand in front of a mirror and be like, I expect nothing from today. I can rest and it's fine and that's okay. And it is so rejuvenating. And setting that intention and taking that time out and not putting these incredibly intense pressures on yourself is so fundamental, but especially when you've got a big company or a publisher breathing down your neck, you have to have the uh, stubbornness to take care of you because at the end of the day, that's what matters. I guess my question with that is how do you push back? So when you do have a boss who's demanding long days of you or you know a publisher who's got a deadline, it is important to take that time, but how do you then actually also professionally say, no, like this is my right to take the time out? Do you want to go? Uh, <laughs> I think I'm quite lucky because I've been very clear from the get-go that I have um, views 
on on excessive crunch. <laughs> like that's kind of my, I, I have stood on stages and talked about how we need to like not burn ourselves out by working so many hours. Um, so I think for me, I always check an interview. I'm always like, what are your opinions on crunch? Because if they are quite a crunchy studio, they won't hire you. But if you don't want to do it, then I think that's good. Like, um, I think making your stance quite clear from the get-go is really important. And then also, like, if you've got, um, if there's a big pushback, sometimes just being like, no, I'm sorry, I've got something this evening, I've got to go. Um, and it's really hard because there is the threat of um, uh, them firing you or something. But it feels like it's changing. There is a big push now, it feels, in the games industry to kind of try to tidy things up and make crunch less of a problem. I've been very privileged because my employer really values your work-life balance, but then there's another pitfall. So you don't have a boss breathing down your neck, but you have yourself breathing down your own neck. And getting into that is so easy because you always want to make better and you set really unrealistic goals for yourself. And it's very difficult telling yourself, just go home, do something else, work on something else, relax, because it's, it's your job, but it's also your passion. And it's what you love to do and have different passions and just different things that you're also doing on the side is so important because then you can go, you can release from work and do something else when you come home. And that's, it's an interesting question because one of the things that I find sometimes as a journalist is that you talk to game developers about their inspirations of why they made a certain game. And a lot of people will talk about another game as their inspiration, but actually that, that taking the time out to go and do other things outside of the industry, whether it's even a sport or watching a movie or going to an art gallery, like some of my favorite games from the last five years have been ones that when I've said to them, what was your inspiration? They've said, oh, it was actually, it was a painting that I saw in the National Portrait Gallery, or oh, actually like it was this series of, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race. And I'm like, I want to play that game. <laughs> that sounds great. You know, it's, it's interesting how actually self-care can lead to better creativity. Does anyone else have any other questions? We've got what, time for one more question. Yeah, go on. Hi, um, I currently work in print and print's in decline and there's a lot of outsourcing and cost cutting and I work in the creative side and it's kind of declining and less creativity. I just wonder how you feel the gaming industry is, what's the kind of state of health creatively and investment wise at the moment in games? Uh, print specifically or? Oh no, no, not at all in print. As okay. I'm just using print as a kind of uh, a comparison. I'm just wondering how the state of health for games, lots of people wanting to get into it, is it a place that is still a healthy, expanding, developing place? I absolutely think so. Um, I think uh, making indie games is more competitive than ever. Um, and I think that's a struggle. But on the contrary, like on, on the other opposite side of things, it's also easier than ever to make video games. And it's also easier to get funding for your video games than, than ever before. So I think what a lot of people were doing previously is that they were putting all their own money into, into a video game and hoping that it's going to be successful. And, and quite often they were, maybe eight years ago. Um, now I think you're able to raise, raise funding for your game and then they're going to share some of that sort of risk uh, with you, which I think is, is hugely beneficial. Um, and I think certain games are selling better than ever before. Certain other games that were selling well, maybe eight years ago, like puzzle platformers, for example, maybe aren't doing so well anymore. Um, so I think it's very much about looking at the market, being smart, um, and I think people that are doing that are making a lot of money. Awesome, thanks so much for your questions, guys. And thanks to you guys on the panel. Um, really quickly before we go, um, thank you again for coming to support BAFTA. If you want to learn more about upcoming BAFTA events or get tickets for our annual games lecture with Media Molecule director, Sean Reddy, then please visit BAFTA.org. In the meantime, though, can we give these guys a massive round of applause? <laughs>